0: Creative. Expertise. Technology. Patents and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasia, right here on The Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando & Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at lalaw.com. I'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Samit & Company, certified public accountants at www.sammet.com. Dash -cpa.com and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group, a single source provider for all of your employee benefits and financial needs at www.sentinelgroup.com. On today's show, we will discuss the recently proposed and perhaps soon to be implemented new generic top-level domains, otherwise referred to as gTLDs. As you may know, GTLDs are internet extensions such as .com or .org, .edu, uh, .gov. Uh, There are 21 generic top-level domains at this time. The Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, otherwise known as ICANN, is the organization responsible for coordinating the internet's identifiers, including the domain name system. ICANN has proposed the introduction of potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of new GTLDs as part of its mission to provide competition in the domain name marketplace while ensuring security and stability. ICANN will be meeting next month in Singapore to potentially finalize plans for the expansion of GTLDs. ICANN's decision, however, uh, has brought a number of issues to the attention of the international business community. What are these issues? And how has ICANN's plan for new GTLDs addressed concerns of the business community? Now joining me today is my guest, Mary Wong, a tenured law professor at the University of New Hampshire School of Law and director of the school's Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property, which will be the focal point of the law school's research and programs aimed at fostering global innovation. In addition to her teaching and academic work, Mary is also on the Generic Names Supporting Organizations Council at ICANN, which, as I noted, is tasked with developing policy for all the generic top-level domains on the internet. She also currently serves as the Vice Chair of the Council and, as such, has been intimately involved with the efforts by ICANN to launch this unprecedented number of new generic top level domains uh, this year. Mary is also the immediate past chair of the uh, American Bar Association's IP Section's International Copyright Committee and has also served on the ABA's Copyright Reform Task Force. Welcome to IP Council, Mary.
2: Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. Well, let's get started. You know, I think a lot of folks, well, certainly. Uh, nearly everybody is familiar with the internet; they're on it every day, but they don't really understand the workings. And uh, when I mention uh, gTLDs or ICANN to to uh, folks, um, I get sometimes an understanding look, and other times I get a, a blank stare. So let's let's start there, and then maybe we can talk about ICANN and and its role in, um, in in the internet, how it came to be, how it has the authority it has and then uh, perhaps about the new plan.
2: Sure, Peter, I'd be glad to. I guess I should preface my remarks um, first by saying that all my comments certainly don't represent the views of my law school and certainly aren't representative of the views of ICANN or the council that I'm on at ICANN. They're purely my personal views offered as observations from a participant perspective over the last couple of years. The second thing I think I want to say to all the listeners is that one consequence of engaging with this topic and with what ICANN does in general, which, Peter, as you noted, is to be providing a secure and stable internet global domain system, is that it is chock full of acronyms from ICANN to GTLDs to to others. And I'll try to minimize those as I go on today, but um, you can't, be part of ICANN without learning a bunch of acronyms.
3: I
1: understand. And, and as, as I hear them, I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, to, to come back and ask you uh, what, what you mean by that. Certainly. Okay. So let's talk about ICANN and how it came to be and, and just what is it?
2: Well, it's a fairly interesting story, and I'll try to keep it brief. As everybody knows, more or less, I think the Internet as we know it today was not the Internet as conceived, if you could even say it was conceived by anybody. It almost was an accident that was created as the result of research done by the U.S. government, academics, and institutions in the United States. And it was really a branch of DARPAnet, which was a defense installation. And at some point in time, the non-military aspects of what was the budding uh, Internet was given over to the National Science Foundation. Um, This was Probably, in the, I'm, I'm not going to be specific about the dates, but we're probably talking about the very early 90s. And at that time, e-commerce wasn't even taking off in the way that it would in the dot-com boom. And the people using what was the Internet then didn't have the World Wide Web and really were just a handful of academics. But as interest in using this system as a global system of communications and commerce grew, the U.S. government Took a very wise decision, in my view, to divest itself of control and ownership of the Internet. Um, there were a bunch of very talented technical people, engineers, and policy people who were working on various aspects of the internet, from the technical protocols to some of the broader policy issues. And there was quite a lot of to and fro as to who should be in charge, should it be based outside the U.S., should it be a government-based organization, should it be purely within the technical community. Uh, the long and the short of it was that ICANN was created in 1998 as a California-based nonprofit corporation, but with a fairly clear mandate to be as inclusive of the global community as possible so that in its decision-making, it would be based on consensus and it would involve the input of a large group of diverse stakeholders from governments to businesses to individual users. And in the 10, 11 years since then, it's been touted as an example of a multi-stakeholder model of global governance whether it works or not or how well it works is a matter of opinion, though. But that's essentially what ICANN is, which is somewhat surprising to people, I think, who either think of it as a, a UN-based organization or something run by governments or a purely U.S.-focused um, creation. It is none of this.
1: That's great. That's great to hear. And it is is—it is a fine example of what the market can, can uh, create. There, I understand there to be 21 generic top-level domain. Right domain names at the moment, and um, why the need to expand?
2: Well, it's interesting you ask that, and I should say that this effort to expand the domain name space at the global level, or the G level, the generic level, um, has been a work in progress for some time. In fact, the Generic Name Supporting Organization, or the GNSO, which is the group that's charged with developing policy within ICANN for all the generic top-level domains issued a report recommending this expansion in 2007. And that report was approved by ICANN's Board of Directors in 2008. And here we are in 2011, so it's been a few years in the making. But if you look back at the GNSO Council's report of 2007, you'll find that there was a lot of investigative inquiry. There were a lot of discussions, papers, and so forth. And one of the things that the report says is that the decision to expand is actually consistent with past decisions that ICANN has taken. The big difference, of course, is that in the past, in 2000 and in 2004, which were the two previous rounds, the number of domains were very strictly limited And there was a taxonomy or framework within which those were released, whether it's .arrow or .biz or .info. So the scale of this is unprecedented, but the assertion is that this is in line with ICANN's mission. And part of what was backing that up was that experience in the two previous rounds I had mentioned showed that it actually works; that that does not present security or stability issues in the system, and statistical data from 2000, from 04 up to 07, showed an amazing increase in the number of domains that were registered in just the few allowed generic top-level domains, something in the neighborhood of 60 million, um, up from 30 million in three years or something. So after some study, the decision was taken based on a perception that there was or is a lot of demand amongst businesses and consumers for an increasing number of domain names, and the idea that as there is a greater amount of choice, that there'll be greater competitiveness, and certainly there'll be pricing and market benefits out of it. So in a nutshell, that was pretty much the thinking behind the recommendations in '07.
1: I see. Uh, is there is there any way to tell... Um... How many of the registrations, as the the experience teaches us, with the with the present expansion up to twenty one uh, GTLDs, uh, how many of those registrations were defensive um, by by owners of let's say a, a .com they they felt then compelled to register the same series of uh, domain names in uh, .biz or .info or what have you um, just just to keep others away from them. Is there any way to tell?
2: You know that's- great question, Peter, and I should say I'm not myself aware of any particular study that's broken it down that way. I certainly think it'll be interesting. It might be something that I can take up within ICANN. Um, you're right, though. The issue of defensive registrations has always been a thorn in the side of trademarks and other rights holders, because clearly to protect your brand in the global internet or on the global internet... There can be only one you know, um, XYZ.com, whereas in the real world in trademarks, you can have XYZ brand in any number of different classes of goods or services as long as there's no confusion between the two. So, so in some ways, if we can use this, a real property analogy that the land grab in the domain name system, the problem there is much more acute than in real world trademarks. Um so there clearly has been the need for trademark owners to engage in defensive registrations just to protect their goodwill and their brands. And I think there's no question that with this unprecedented new expansion that the pressure on trademark owners to keep doing defensive registrations will definitely increase.
1: Okay. Okay. Well let's let's talk a little about um the the GTLDs and, and what types of um top-level domains. Uh, What are some limitations on what these new TLDs could could be?
2: Well, there's a number of limitations in different areas. Um, Maybe I could start by talking about barriers to entry. Um, There are costs associated with applying for a new GTLD and certainly with actually establishing all the technical, financial, and other commitments that one would be required by ICANN to even have a generic top-level domain. So, for example, the application fee itself, which is supposed to be on a cost recovery basis for ICANN, has been set at 185 thousand US dollars, which is a not insignificant amount even for a fairly large corporation. Mm-hmm. On top of that, it's been estimated that the cost, you know, for the t- on the technical side and feasibility and and what have you, of even getting up and running, all the registry services that you need is at least another half a million US dollars. So cost wise it's you know it it can be prohibitive for a, a smallish business and it is something to consider even for a larger corporation. Then there are obviously the technical considerations and the business considerations of whether, let's say you know I'm going to use go back to brand owners, whether you are Nike or Apple or you know Fuji or Morgan Stanley, do you want to run your own dot Apple.Nike. You might for strategic reasons, but for day-to-day operational reasons, you might not want to do that. On top of that, there are, I I should call them safeguards within the application process that have to do with trying not to upset the security of the internet and trying not to confuse consumers. So, for example, if you apply for a GTLD that is very strongly similar to somebody else's application, that's what we call a string contention, and that dispute will have to be resolved. There are also avenues for um, governments to object to either sensitive strings or geographic names, and there are certainly avenues for objection based on some public interest type objection or even a legal rights objection. If somebody applies for a GTLD, that isn 't similar, say, to an existing one, but is similar to somebody else 's trademark. There are avenues for dispute resolution there as well, okay. so that 's just a flavor of the sort of things that can happen during the application process that might condition either somebody 's desire or somebody 's um, actual proceeding with an application at the application stage
1: i see um but but I can sense though that there is going to be this rush towards certain um, generic names, if you will, uh, take our field, uh, dot law. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, and, and, and so say there's a, a number of parties that all see a value in having a dot law. They all can afford the $185,000 and the, the other monies uh, uh, required. Um, how, how is a determination to be made? Uh, who gets it?
2: Um, And I think, you know, just just to start by saying that I think you're absolutely right. For many of us in this community, we think that the first out of the gate, and quite likely the more successful new GTLDs are going to be, I guess, the more generic types, like you said, .law. There's certainly been interest expressed in .music, .food, .eco, .green, for Mm -hmm. example, and there's a number of others that have already expressed interest. Um, So some of the possible barriers or objections that I had mentioned might not arise in this respect, Um, there are still a number of hurdles and hoops that one has to jump through. And like I said, there would be some evaluation on the part of ICANN. First, on technical operations. Secondly, the applicant himself, herself, or itself, there are background checks done on the applicant. Um, There are also other administrative criteria that have to be fulfilled. And it does depend, though, on whether there w- there is an objection that is filed to somebody's application. Um, in dot law, for example, um, it might be something, and I'm speculating here because I don't know, but um, some governments recently have raised the possibility that certain strings might be sensitive, not just for geographic or cultural reasons, but because of what I think you alluded to, what... Who would be the appropriate entity to run, say, dot bank has been the example that's been raised. Should it be a private institution within one country or should it be a consortium or should it be nobody? So while I don't think dot law might raise exactly that level of concern, that might be something that would trigger certain uh, objections or concerns on the part of either governments or other members of the community, and they might want to raise objections in that regard. If we go cycle all the way to the end of the application process, though, um, ICANN does estimate that an average application that's not considered problematic, that doesn't have a bunch of objections or problems, could be done within nine months, but a complex application might take as long as 20 months. But at the end of the day, let's say there is a string contention between two applicants for DOT law. Or somebody wants dot law, and somebody wants something that's very highly similar, one possibility kind of the last ditch um remedy if the applicants cannot resolve the problem amongst themselves is actually the possibility of an auction, and that of course has created some concerns in the minds of some people but it it does raise the question you know if you don't if you've gone to the end of the cycle, you've passed all the objections or there have been none. Um And there's still two contenders for the same thing, both of which have some valid claim. How else do you resolve it except through auction so that's the sort of ultimate last ditch um resort and remedy
1: I see okay. Well, since we're headed in that direction, we're talking about concerns as these uh, um, new uh, top-level domains have been proposed. What are some of the other concerns? I know um, you you glanced at it, but uh, trademark um, Mm -hmm. owners are are very concerned, I understand, about the uh, proposal. Um, Maybe you can share some of those concerns.
2: Absolutely. Um, And I don't think I mentioned that a couple of years ago the ICANN board – in response to the community uh, concerns that were expressed through various comment periods, like I said, ICANN is supposed to be a bottom-up multi-stakeholder organization, had designated four overarching areas of concern, one of which was trademarks. Others included malicious conduct like phishing and so forth. There were also security issues and economic concerns. But trademarks was one of the four issues. And, you know, as we've said before, the need for defensive registrations is definitely going to rise because of this potential unlocking of hundreds of domains. Clearly, the concern is over cyber-squatting. It's probably the number one concern for trademark owners. And so in the last few years, there have been some attempts, both on the part of the IP community as well as on ICANN's own part, to try to come up with a set of meaningful rights protection mechanisms, or RPMs, and here I go with the acronyms again, yeah. <laughs> uh, that will, to to and as far an extent as possible, adequately protect the valid, legitimate concerns of trademark owners, but without having an undue chilling effect on speech, on individual rights of free expression, or even on business competitive concerns, because as we've said before, There may be two different trademark owners in the real world with very similar trademarks, but because their trademarks are registered in totally different classes of goods or services, that's not a problem in the real world. But that may become a problem in the online world, certainly when you can only have one particular generic top-level domain or you can have a number of confusingly similar second-level domains within one generic So there have been a set of RPMs proposed. Would you like me to describe those?
1: Yes, I think uh, maybe we can touch on that right now and then...
2: Sure. So in 2009, I believe it was, at the request of um, the ICANN board, the Intellectual Property Constituency within ICANN convened a sort of task force called the Implementation Recommendations Team. It was a group of about, I think, 15 to 20 IP experts who were actually tasked with that very charge to develop a balanced, meaningful RPMs. I was actually invited on that team as the academic member. So we developed a set of recommendations that have, to some extent, survived into this current iteration of what we're calling the Draft Applicant Guidebook. There's a guidebook that ICANN has issued to guide potential applicants through the process, and um, we are now in the sixth iteration. Hmm. but. You can tell that it's been a couple of years. <laughs> and um, those recommendations were given to the community to comment on Were other groups that were formed in response to some public concerns that tweaked some of these recommendations and recommended other types of RPMs that were similar. Ultimately, there are at least two that I think are going to be interest to trademark holders and brand owners. The first is something called a trademark clearinghouse which is essentially a third-party service provider that will receive and validate claims that a certain corporation or person owns a certain trademark. And those trademarks can be nationally registered in any jurisdiction. They can be trademarked. that are validated by a court or some kind of treaty. So, it's a database. But What that database is going to be useful for is for two things. One is a trademark claim service, and the other is what a lot of people working in the GTLD space know as Sunrise. For Mm -hmm. trademark claims, what's going to happen is this. If someone applies for a domain name that is an identical match with a trademark that's been registered with the clearinghouse, the applicant will get a notice saying, hey, what you're applying for is a match with somebody's trademark. If you proceed, you're going to have to warrant that your use of this domain is not going to infringe on their trademark. So -hmm. that's one way that um, trademark owners' rights can be alerted and in some ways protected because it is kind of a warning system to applicants. Then for Sunrise, um, essentially what that means is that prior to the formal launch of a particular GTLD, trademark owners will be given the opportunity to pre-launch, if you like, or sorry, pre-register their trademark so that they get it before somebody else.
0: Uh,
2: The second mechanism, besides the trademark clearinghouse and these services, is something called the Uniform Rapid Suspension Service, or the URS. And I should emphasize that this is not the same as what a lot of trademark attorneys know as the UDRP or the Uniform Dispute Resolution Policy that ICANN adopted in '99, mm-hmm. which all GTLD registry operators and registrars abide by. As we know, the UDRP is basically a mandatory administrative proceeding where a successful complainant, say a trademark holder, if they win a UDRP proceeding, they can get that domain name transferred to them. Under what's proposed as the URS for the new GTLD system, there is no transfer. Instead, what happens is that the domain name, if the trademark owner succeeds in a complaint, is suspended for the duration of its registration. So it can't be used by the respondent, but it doesn't transfer over to the trademark owner. And the level of evidence that's required under the URS is also... um, higher than under the UDRP in that under the URS, because it's meant to really only get at the slam dunk cases. The standard is a clear and convincing evidence. So the idea is to provide a quick and um, rather preliminary solution to trademark owners that is supplemental to the UDRP so that trademark owners can start off using the URS, which is supposed to be cheap as well. I think the estimate is a few hundred dollars. And if they win on that and they get the domain name suspended, they may choose to proceed with a full UDRP proceeding or, you know, with litigation in a national court or something. So those are the two main RPMs that are in the current iteration of the guidebook. Um, As you may know, Peter, and as listeners may know, uh, quite a number of trademark owners have said that while these are useful mechanisms, they really are not good enough to protect against cyber squatting and all the other problems that they see with this new GTLD system.
1: Let me, let me hold you there, Mary, because sure. you raised a couple of questions, um, um, at least in my mind, on the, on the few points on uh, the URS, the Clearinghouse, and the uh, Sunrise. I, I want to follow up with that and then um, let you move forward as far as um, cyber squatting and security issues that, that have been raised. And I have a couple of other related questions, but I, uh, I think we need to take a short break right here. When we return, more with Professor Mary Wong. And now a word from our sponsors, Samet & Company and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group.
0: As a business professional or personal investor, you're continually managing change. At and Company, Certified Public Accountants provides audit, tax, accounting, and financial expertise to help you plan for and manage change in ways that yield predictable long-term benefits. At Samet, you can count on a level of integrity that is beyond compare. Our dedicated team consistently puts forth the extra effort to deliver timely, resourceful solutions. At Salmon, it's about your success, not ours. Call us now at 617-731-1222. That's 617-731-1222. Or visit us at samet-cpa.com.
3: Hi, Tom. This practice management conference is great. I'm getting lots of good ideas about managing our firm.
0: Me too.
1: The last session was really interesting. Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. They were talking about
3: saving for retirement with cash balance plans. What are those? It's a special type of defined benefit plan. It looks like a profit-sharing plan. And what's so special about them?
1: The contributions to the partners can be as much as $200,000, and we don't need to increase the contributions to our other employees by much at all.
3: So can any firm use a cash balance plan?
1: The speaker from Sentinel Benefits said it works best for more senior
0: partners.
3: Our partners haven't been able to put much into the 401k plan at all lately.
0: You should give Sentinel Benefits a call at 781-914-1200
1: or visit sentinelgroup.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L
0: group.com for more information.
3: That was sentinelgroup.com, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.com or call 781-914-1200 for more information.
1: Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Professor Mary Wong from the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Mary, when we, uh, when we broke, you had just started getting into um, security or, or cyber squatting issues, and I, I rudely interrupted. I, I wanted to go back just a little bit and, and close on the trademark clearinghouse, the, the Sunrise provisions, and the relationship of URS and UDRP. So, for instance, um, with regard to the trademark clearinghouse that you mentioned as a protection for trademark owners, is is there a fee associated for uh, the registration
2: There is a fee. It's not clear what it is yet, um, because it's still somewhat general at this point, because we don't even know who the likely provider of the clearinghouse will be. But the latest iteration of the guidebook makes it very clear that trademark owners will have to pay to register their marks in the clearinghouse.
1: Okay. Because I thought it was a great idea myself, but I thought, okay, here's here's an expense. Trademark owners are going to have to uh, assume as they would in any policing role as a trademark owner. It's a it's a duty. It's an obligation. What what about the sunrise period? Now, how how is that going to work?
2: Well, again, I think that it's not clear what the cost will be. It really does depend on who the registry operator for the GTLD is and what they charge. I would imagine that some guidance can be gotten from the sunrise periods of more recent. Launches of interest to trademark owners like .eu .asia or even the uh, redelegation of .co quite recently for a kind of ballpark figure, but we probably won't know until the registry operators gear up to launch their services.
1: I see. Okay, and then and then uh, one other thing uh, um, caught my mind as you were as you were mentioning it the the URS uh, provisions and and that the uh, the ability to uh, suspend. A, a a problematic um, um, domain uh, but not necessarily uh, transfer it and that got me to thinking about well what if there's a, um, a dot brand for example uh, becomes a new top level domain and uh, let's say it's nike dot brand but it's not registered by nike it's mm-hmm. registered by um, a competitor, or even just some cyber squatter, somebody just saying, "Hey, I'm going to register Nike under the new top level." Um, Nike, um, my understanding was that would still have the ability then to bring a UDRP action to to uh, say, "Hey, that was registered in bad faith."
2: Yes, they would actually, and it's interesting because the two are different but complementary. So the idea of the URS is. Um, and if I didn't make it uh, clear earlier before, I apologize, is really a quick and cheap way to really clear the most egregious, obvious cybersquatting cases so that you don't need a UDRP proceeding. In the example that you raised, if it's a known cybersquatter, that would probably be a very clear candidate for the URS, especially as the standards or the criteria upon which the URS complaint will be decided are essentially the UDRP criteria, so that the registrant doesn't have a legitimate right or interest to the domain, and he or she was registering it and using it in bad faith. So the whole idea is that it's a similar thing, but it's quicker, it's cheaper, and for the slam-dunk cases, you get it suspended. You don't have to go to the UDRP if you don't want to.
1: I see. Okay, okay, thanks for clearing up those issues for me. The the um the other concerns that have been raised um certainly we talked about the trademark owners and the protections that you've uh Ican has has uh discussed implementing um I, I've read a lot about financial concerns that this is going to be a great cost and it, it doesn't take a cynic to, to think that uh, ICANN perhaps is doing this to – you mentioned they're a non-profit but they they're, they're, may still be doing this to raise, to raise uh, money. Um, <laughs> hundreds of new top-level domain names. Um, it, it seems that there's a potential for a, a large financial gain. So, so the cynicism is out there, but 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 the cost associated with this, I've seen that uh, or read many uh, uh, articles about that being a great concern. How, how has that been, or has that been addressed?
2: Well, and you're certainly right. The cynical view is out there, and I can't speak for I can or you know what the the. Uh, viewers as doing 185000 and, and what, what it could do. Um, I think clearly, if you look at a lot of the proposals in the guidebook, I mean, ICANN is not doing this as a public service. A lot of the costs and charges are on a cost recovery basis at the very least. Um, at the same time, ICANN has always maintained that this is a great business opportunity for potential new registries, for existing registries, and certainly for the hundreds of registrars out there. And this is even before we get to, you know, the enterprises, the corporations, the businesses that might want to expand beyond a .com and increase its brand reputation. So, in terms of revenue-generating opportunities, I do think we have to look beyond ICANN and and look at the possible business benefits that could be generated, kind of like a domino effect if you go down the line. I I think there is no question that I can will come out cash positive out of this. But um, I have to say I don't myself subscribe to the cynical view that, or the overly cynical view that the only reason they're doing this is to make money for themselves. Um, They might be part of it, but I'm sure that's not the only reason.
1: Okay, Um, I'm, I'm thinking if the if the floodgates are opened here, the number of top level new top level domain names could be thousands. Um, how how is the uh, how are you planning for that? Is it is it just a free for all right at the okay? It's as of January first we can do it and and now here's thousands and thousands of new top levels or is it going to be staged? Um, are there any limitations as to what these words can be um, characters or um, maybe you can can fill us in with a little of that.
2: Well, you raise a great point, and and there's a lot of things that we can talk about within that. Um, First, let me back up a bit and go back to the financial question, because one thing that I think I should mention, because this has been the concern of a number of governments and certainly amongst much of the community within ICANN itself, is how do you provide assistance and should you provide assistance to developing countries, to poor communities, um, and to other worthy, needy applicants who really... Aren't as wealthy to come out of the 185 plus the 500,000 to launch and so forth. So there is a policy effort within ICANN to try to develop some mechanisms to help those applicants through that process. I just wanted to make that point. Uh, On your question, there are a number of things that, that have been talked about, and it's quite clear that we are probably looking at the system being able to handle at least a few hundred applications and new GTLDs. The number that I've heard is between 500 to 1,000. So clearly there's been a lot of technical uh, analyses that's gone into that. What ICANN will probably do is to stagger the applications in terms of various rounds so that when, I I say when, not if, the new program is finalized and announced, um, there will be a first round that will last for two months. And that will probably attract the few hundreds that ICANN is expecting. It's not clear whether or when there will be a second round. I assume that there will be lessons learned from the first round that will go into some of the processes for the second round. So it may be a couple of years out before we see a second round announced. And that's kind of the thinking that most of the community has and that most of us have accepted as being the likely road forward.
1: Okay. And are there any uh, limitations as to what these um domain names could be or these top level domain names could be?
2: Well, speaking very generally, um there are well there are two kinds of applications that can go forward. There's the community-based applications where the applicant would represent a particular community. Uh, it could be a, a linguistic community, a cultural community or geographically based community. Then there's the general applications. Uh, which are the standard applications, which could be anything from the brands to uh, generics that we've discussed, Uh, there are some limitations that have to do with, say, geographic names. If you actually have an application that is a geographic name that is the same as a country or territory, you actually have to demonstrate either support or at least lack of opposition from the relevant government authority. Then there are certain reserved names within ICANN's list, and this reserved list has been in existence for a long time. It wasn't created for this application round, and you simply are not allowed to get a, a particular GTLD. You couldn't apply for .ICANN, for example, unless you're ICANN.
1: I see. Okay. Um so it sounds like there's been an awful lot of going uh, 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 hearings and versions in the in uh, in uh, proposals and what have you. Um, and you, you, I think you mentioned this was version six.
2: We are in version six, and, and you know, I've probably not mentioned it before, but I cannot downplay the flurry of activity and interest and you know, lobbying and back and forth and and negotiating and compromising that's gone on through the last five iterations of the guidebook for the past two or three years within the ICANN community. I think that's a consequence of the multi-stakeholder model. Compromises will have to be made, and some of the trademark protections I was talking about earlier were the result of, first of all, public consultation, and secondly, of compromise. And that must, in part, account for the delay, you know, we announced it in 7 08, and we're still waiting for the launch, um, but that's the way ICANN works. We do expect that um, the ICANN board is very hopeful that it will announce the launch of at least a substantial portion of the new GTLD uh, application rounds, perhaps the non-controversial types of applications at its next meeting in Singapore in June, um, because that's been a long time in coming. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the temperature within ICANN when you talk to people there and when you talk to people who have been involved in the process for longer than I have.
1: I see. So the meeting in June in Singapore, there's already, uh, uh, are there already applications that uh, would be considered non-controversial?
2: Well, I mean, I should probably rephrase that a little bit. I don't know for sure what applications will be non-controversial, but that's been a possibility that's been suggested, that in the sense that there is likely to be a large number of non-controversial applications, and rather than hold these back in order to resolve remaining issues with certain types of applications, why not do a phased launch? I think, for what is worth, my personal view is that ICANN would prefer to just go with the launch and not do a cutoff, but we don't know yet because there is a special board meeting in Singapore on the 20th of June, and that is supposed to be the meeting at which the board will decide what to do going forward, and the betting is that they will launch something. At the same time, the governments, through the advisory committee they have at ICANN, are insisting that there are some outstanding issues that need to be resolved. They've been talking to the ICANN board, and there is a meeting between their committee and the ICANN board the day before, on the 19th. So certain things are still in play, but I fully expect an announcement of some sort or other on the 20th of June.
1: Okay. Well, this is this is certainly very exciting. I, di- I did want to mention, though, uh, you, you mentioned the guidebook a couple of times, and, and that can be found on the ICANN uh, website. Uh, which is www.icann.org. O-R-G. Absolutely. Okay. And I, if you I, go
2: to um, ICANN's website, as Peter has outlined, there is a navigation bar that points you to a different a, a number of different. Um, pages. And there is a section on new top-level domains where all 348 pages of the guidebook can be viewed in all their glory.
1: It's been uh, quite, quite a bit of work, and it's uh, in, in, no doubt. I mean, do you think about a, um, an undertaking of this magnitude, of course, it's, it's been a lot of work, and, and the, uh, the compromises are, uh, are, are clear. Uh, Mary, are there any other concerns or any uh, push and pull that we haven't touched on that, that would be interesting for our listeners?
2: Well there's probably quite a few that we haven't been able to discuss um, or even mention in, in any detail at all. And in the interest of time, I think the easiest way to answer that question would be to um, for listeners to go to the ICANN website to look at, not necessarily the, the guidebook, but to look at some of the comments and the analysis documents and explanatory memorandum that have been put up there, because there really are a lot of distinct issues, um, some very specific issues, but each issue is of importance to a particular segment of the community. And there's also obviously blogs and reports out there that will report from, say, the registrar's or domainer's perspectives or the uh, trademark owner's perspectives as well.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mary. Um, That about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all of our shows at legaltalknetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. A very special thanks to my guest, Mary Wong, for joining me today. Uh, Mary, uh, if someone wants uh, more information on this topic, how can they reach you?
2: Well, I would be very happy to answer any questions anyone would have. You can get me on email at Mary.wong at law.unh.edu, or you can find my bio on the web page for UNH Law, which is law.unh.edu.
1: And that reminds me, um, just uh, just a little aside, Mary, um, I understand you're you're just taking over the uh, as the director of the uh, Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property. Can you just give us a brief uh, uh, description of what that's all about?
2: Certainly, and it's a really exciting opportunity. As a number of listeners might know, the Franklin Pierce Center for Intellectual Property is a brand new institution being launched by UNH Law in consequence of the school's affiliation with the University of New Hampshire, because we were previously the Franklin Pierce Law Center. Uh, We are ranked number four in the U.S. for IP education. And we are known globally for IP training, education, and research. So the idea behind the center is to provide a home for all of our programs, as well as a base for us to find new partners, to expand our programming, and to update our educational curriculum. So hopefully, I'll be able to come back and talk more about that on your program at some point, Peter.
1: Well, that's outstanding, Mary. Sounds like you're, uh, you're in, in the lead in a bunch of exciting uh, ventures.
2: Probably too much, but um, (laughs) these are exciting times for all of us in the IP field.
1: Very good. Uh, And, of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at PLando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone.
0: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. It's officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.